In many Christian circles, the concept of God's wrath is ignored or just denied. For many people, God's wrath displayed through Jesus Christ is equally untenable. However, in John's description of the tribulation, we read of the response of those who reject Christ in the tribulation. We read in Revelation chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Notice now, first of all, it is God the Father that is on the throne, and the wrath displayed in the tribulation is that of Jesus Christ, the one who died for all men. There's a day coming when God's wrath will be released, and it has been placed in the hands of the Lamb. For he is the one who offered himself as a substitute for those very ones who reject him and who deserve his wrath. When we discuss the Lamb's wrath, I'm often asked, will Christians go through the tribulation? The answer to this question is found in understanding the Lamb's wrath and God's purposes for the tribulation. For the scriptures tell us that just before Jesus Christ returns to begin his thousand-year reign and establish his millennial kingdom here on earth, there will be a seven-year period in earth's history called the tribulation. We read in Matthew 24, verse 21, For then shall be great tribulation, for such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. This terrible period of time, this period when God will pour out his wrath upon the unbelieving and rebellious nations and individuals, has many names in the Bible. It is called the Great and Terrible Day of the Lord, the Time of Distress, the 70th Week of Daniel, the Time of Jacob's Trouble, and many others. Now, the Bible indicates that prior to the start of this tribulation, the church that is made up of all true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the church will be removed or caught up from the earth to meet the Lord in the air and then return with him to heaven. We call this catching away or the rapture of the church. As we shall see, the removal of true believers before the start of the tribulation is essential for God's purposes in pouring out his wrath has nothing to do with the church. Now, in describing the tribulation, God tells us that he will focus his attention upon five distinct groups. These five groups are unsaved Gentile peoples on the earth, unsaved Jewish people on the earth, nations and their unsaved leaders or kings, Satan and his rebellious angels, and finally, the nation of Israel. Now, since the church is not part of any of these groups and consequently does not need to be on the earth during this time, God desires the church to be in heaven where other events for the church alone will be taking place as part of her preparation for her return to the earth 
with her bridegroom and the Lord, who will return as king of kings on the earth. The proof of this is found in a careful examination of God's plan for history, which includes the tribulation. It is through God's interactions with these five distinct groups that God will demonstrate his purposes of the tribulation, which are number one, to demonstrate his justice and wrath on the ungodly in a tangible and visible way. Number two, to make an end of wickedness and evil upon the earth. Number three, to offer his grace to those who turn to him even during this time of wrath. And four, break the power of the holy people of Israel, turning them back to himself and reestablishing his relationship to them. For countless centuries, true and faithful believers have prayed for God's justice to be revealed in a tangible and visible way to those who oppose God, God's plan, and his people. We read in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? During the tribulation, God will begin to reveal his justice and wrath, avenging all the atrocities and the rejection of his son and his people down through the ages. The first way that God will reveal this is by pouring out his wrath upon all the people on earth who rejected Jesus Christ. For the Bible tells us in John chapter 3 and verse 36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Ever since the Garden of Eden, God has offered men and women a choice, either to obey God and serve him by walking in his ways, or to rebel against God, disobeying him, walking contrary to his revealed purposes. In the Old Testament, this meant obeying God's laws and believing that God would send a Redeemer to save them, if they just trusted that God will send that Redeemer one day. And since Pentecost, it has meant receiving the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, and receiving him and accepting him as your Redeemer by faith alone. Now, since it's easier to oppose something visible and tangible, and remember, God is invisible, those who oppose God and reject his Son often carry out their rejection against the invisible God by persecuting his visible representatives on earth, the believers. As history demonstrates, the persecution of God's people has been ongoing. Although the degree of persecution has varied with time, it is very real, and the Bible warns us to expect it. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. God's holy 
righteous, and just nature demands that he deals with this rebellion and cruelty toward his believers. It is only his merciful, gracious, and long-suffering or patient nature that has kept back his wrath thus far. But we are told that it will come to an end. God will avenge his own. Paul, writing in Romans chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, tells us, Despiseth thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering? Not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. During the tribulation, God will demonstrate his justice to Christ-rejectors in a tangible and very visible way. He will do it in a way that leaves no doubt as to who is bringing about the justice and the wrath. John informs us that the unsaved on the earth will recognize that it is God's doing and that which is coming upon them is from God. For we read in Revelation 6, verse 16, where they will say to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The second way that God's justice will be revealed is when he pours out his wrath upon those who have mistreated the Jewish people and his beloved nation of Israel throughout all of history. You see, God began his nation of Israel with one man, Abraham, and gave several specific promises to him. We read in Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1, Now the Lord said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed." God continued this promise through Abraham's son Isaac and then Isaac's son Jacob. You see, Israel is God's chosen nation. They're the apple of his eye. Therefore, he has promised to protect them according to Leviticus 26, verse 44. The distinguishing or singling out of Israel as a special nation reflected a significant differentiation in God's definition of the world's people and nations. Regardless of nation, people were now either Jewish or Gentile, Gentile being non-Jewish. As God's visible representative to the world, Israel became a test to the other nations of the world and their peoples by providing those people, the Gentiles, with a choice. 
either to bless Israel and be blessed by God, or to curse Israel and be cursed of God. For those persecuting Israel, God says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 7, speaking of those people who are the enemies of Israel, he says, And the Lord thy God will put all these curses upon thine enemies and on them that hate thee, which persecuted thee. God repeats again in Micah 5, verse 15, And I will execute vengeance in anger and fury upon the heathen. Now the heathen is the word Gentiles, such as they have not heard. God's just nature demands visible and tangible action against those who oppose his son, Jesus Christ, and against those who oppose his nation of Israel and her people. Thus, during the tribulation, God will demonstrate his justice in a tangible and visible way toward those who have mistreated the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. The third way that God's justice will be revealed is when he pours out his wrath upon the ungodly nations of the earth and their leaders. In addition to individual unbelievers experiencing God's justice and wrath in a visible and tangible way, the nations as a whole and their leaders that rejected God must experience his wrath as well. Led by Nimrod, ancient Babylon was the first nation or kingdom to reject God. It was at Babel in Babylon, today's Iraq, that the first pagan religion began, and it will become the center of Satan's final worldwide religion. God's wrath will be demonstrated when he destroys that city that represents the nation and false supra-religion in only one hour. Revelation 18 in verses 10, 20, and 23 tells us, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her, for by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. Now, in addition to Babylon, the other ungodly nations and rulers of the world will also be judged and God's wrath brought upon them. They shall come down to Armageddon against the nation of Israel to be judged. Isaiah 24, verse 21 says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the kings of the earth upon the earth. And to the nations, in Jeremiah 10, verse 10, the Lord says, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth shall tremble and the nations shall not be able to abide his indignation. And over in Revelation 6, beginning in verse 16, And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, 
and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come. During the tribulation, God is going to demonstrate his justice in a tangible and visible way upon the ungodly nations of the world and their leaders. The fourth way that God's justice will be revealed is when he pours out his wrath on Satan and his fallen angels or demons. At the midpoint of the tribulation, war will break out in heaven and Michael, that's the archangel and protector of Israel, along with his angels, will cast Satan and his fallen angels out of heaven forever. For we read in Revelation 12, beginning in verse 7, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent, called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Satan now will no longer be able to accuse believers before God's throne. So look at verse 10. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accuseth them before our God day and night. Thus, Isaiah's prophecy regarding Satan and the fallen angels will begin to be fulfilled. For Isaiah 24, verse 21 says, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall punish the host of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. This will begin phase one of Satan's defeat and ultimate judgment. Never again will he or his demonic host of angels have access to heaven. From this point onward, only righteous beings will be there. Now those on earth, however, will experience the full force of his wrath. For we read in verse 12, Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Satan will be full of wrath when he's cast down to the earth, for he knows his time is very short. Although he will target the nation of Israel and believers in his anger, God will allow him and his demonic host to be the instruments through which justice is poured out on Christ rejectors and the haters of Israel. The pent-up justice of God will be released as a judgment on those who have rejected him and his son throughout all of history. 
Just as Adam represented all mankind in a single act of rebellion, now the nations of the earth during the tribulation will represent all the past nations and humanity of history that rejected God and God's people. We read in Nahum chapter 1 verse 2, God is jealous and the Lord revengeth, the Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take his vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. Paul writing in Romans 9:22 says, "What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction?" You see, as God's justice and wrath are demonstrated for all to see, we need to understand that God is not cruel and unjust as many postmodern Christians suggest. For God has done everything possible to warn nations and people of the consequences of sin and rebellion and to offer his mercy and grace through his Son throughout history. It is but at this point in history, the tribulation, that God now fulfills Matthew 24, verse 14, when he says, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Further, God's plan of history serves to demonstrate that he is wise and just in all his doings and that humanity's sin problem and rejection of God are not the results of man's environment or circumstances. No, the problem is within the hearts of men and women. The tribulation is but one of three unique times in history that God demonstrates this truth. The first time began in the Garden of Eden. God showed that under the best possible conditions, Adam and Eve chose to rebel and follow Satan rather than to trust God's word and wisdom. Remember, at that time, Adam and Eve did not have sin natures or a disposition toward evil. Now, some might say, aha, but they didn't face our world. You see, people turn to God in hard times, do they? Now, it's true. Life was simpler. It would seem that if things were really bad, humanity might turn to God through hopelessness and despair. So, God will demonstrate that under the worst possible conditions upon the earth, that's during the tribulation, the majority of men and women still will not trust God's word or his wisdom. For many will reject God's salvation and choose evil by following the Antichrist. The rejection of God by many is best seen in their response to the death of God's two witnesses recorded in Revelation 11. Beginning in verse 7, we have these two witnesses, the story of how they have spread the gospel for three and a half years in the tribulation. And then we read in verse 7, And when they, the two witnesses, shall have finished their testimony, 
The beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them, and make merry, and send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwell upon the earth. Now, there's a third possible argument, a third state in which perhaps mankind could argue that given a perfect world with a perfect environment, with a perfect government that is led by a visible, righteous ruler, then people would follow God. Well, during the millennium, Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, will visibly rule and reign over the entire earth with his bride, the church. He will rule with perfect judgment and righteousness, and the earth, furthermore, will be restored to the Eden-like conditions. Yet, according to Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 and 8, many will still reject the Lord and reject obeying God. You see, the problem lies within the heart. Thus, all of history demonstrates that only faith in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ can change the human heart and will end the enmity or rebellion against God. The garden, the tribulation, the millennium, all serve to remove all of humanity's excuses for not following or obeying God. But God, in his graciousness, leaves the choice up to each individual to decide whether they will turn to him or reject him. Only salvation by faith alone enables men and women, boys and girls, to live godly. Thus, the tribulation reveals the inherent rebellion of the human heart against God and demonstrates that God is just in pouring out his wrath upon those who reject him. We have just seen the first purpose of the tribulation was for God to demonstrate his justice and wrath on the ungodly in a tangible and visible way. We are now ready to look at his second purpose of the tribulation, and that is to make an end of wickedness and evil upon the earth. When Satan is cast out of heaven at the midpoint of the tribulation, he will know that his time is short and that his rule as the God, that's with a little g, of this age is coming to an end. For according to Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3, at the end of the tribulation, he will be bound and placed in the bottomless pit for 1,000 years. Not only will Satan's rule come to an end, 
but also outward wickedness and evil will cease upon the earth. For Isaiah tells us in chapter 13, verse 11, God says, And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Now, at the end of the tribulation, Jesus Christ will return gloriously with his bride, the church, and destroy all those who are unsaved. Only believers who have survived the tribulation will actually go into the millennium to live on the earth. Again, Isaiah in chapter 13, verse 9 tells us, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. During the millennium, people will be born who must decide whether or not to receive Jesus Christ as Savior. The Bible indicates that during this time of the millennium, wickedness will be concealed within the heart. At last, God will judge the wicked of all times following the millennium at the great white throne judgment. And those people who had rejected Jesus Christ will be placed in the lake of fire for eternity. The tribulation is merely the beginning of God's making an end of wickedness. We now look at God's third purpose of the tribulation, that is to demonstrate his grace even during the time of his wrath. During the tribulation, all will see that even though God is pouring out his wrath upon the earth, there is still time to accept Jesus Christ as Savior. For John tells us in Revelation chapter 7 verses 1 through 17 that many will be saved. For he says, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? Whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Salvation will continue to be offered to all humanity until the close of history and the creation of the new heaven and earth, which will occur at the end of the millennium. God never ceases offering his gift of salvation from the garden all the way to the end of the millennium. Despite massive persecution and religious and governmental opposition, many will accept Jesus Christ as Savior. During this time of wrath, there will be an unprecedented evangelism through God's grace. As you recall, at the start of the tribulation, there will be no saved or righteous people on the earth. For all believers will have been removed in the catching up of the church or the rapture. 
As the tribulation begins, though, God will send two witnesses, perhaps Moses and Elijah, who will reach 144,000 Jewish men with the gospel, who will in turn lead many to the Lord. God's grace will continue throughout the tribulation, and we will see his grace will continue for all eternity. Having seen God's grace during this time of his wrath during the tribulation, we will now see his fourth purpose of the tribulation. That is to break the power of the holy people of Israel and to turn them back to himself. God will never forget his chosen nation of Israel and the Jewish people, those descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. At the founding of his nation, God promised to remember them because of the covenant he made with them. And we read in Leviticus 26, God says, And that I also have walked contrary unto them, and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If then, that's crucial, if then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled, and they then accept of the punishment of their iniquity, then will I remember my covenant with Jacob, and also my covenant with Isaac, and also my covenant with Abraham, will I remember. I will remember the land. Today, Israel is primarily a secular nation, with only a small minority seeking to know God. However, he has not forgotten them. When God revealed the 70th week, or the time of the tribulation, to the prophet Daniel, he gave him a vision which explains the final reason or purpose for the tribulation. Daniel chapter 12, verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, there stood other two, the one on this side of the bank of the river and the other on that side of the bank of the river. And one said to the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and a half. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. What God was saying here is God told Daniel that he will scatter the power of the holy people. When that's accomplished, the tribulation will end, and he will then send his son, Jesus Christ, back to the earth, to put Satan into the bottomless pit and to establish his millennial kingdom on earth. Now, the words scatter the power may seem a little strange to us at first, but when we study to see what they mean, we learn that it means to break the stubborn resistance of the Jewish people to recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ. The events of the tribulation will bring the Jewish people to a point of desperation, so that they will cry out to God in repentance, turning to the Lord for deliverance from their enemies and for salvation. Hosea describes what will happen at the end of the tribulation in chapter 5, beginning at verse 
15, and I'll read verse 6-1 also. Hosea writes, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. Come, and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn, and he will heal us. He hath smitten, and he will bind us up. Thus Israel will turn to the Lord to heal them, to bind them up, and this will take the entire tribulation to bring them to that position. Now, Israel's response to the tribulation is threefold. At the start of the tribulation, God will begin his process of restoring Israel by bringing them first back to the land, according to Ezekiel 36, verse 24, where he writes, For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. I believe that this could well have begun in 1948, with the reformation of the nation of Israel. The persecution and fear they will experience, especially during the last half of the tribulation, that's time, times and a half, will cause them to yearn for the Messiah to deliver them. And when they recognize him and repent as a nation, they will be cleansed by the Lord. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-five. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you. You shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Will I cleanse you? Then, at the conclusion of the tribulation, God will give Israel a new heart. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six. A new heart will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. When God breaks Israel's resistance and humbles the hearts of her people, they will acknowledge that God was just or righteous in chastening them for their national sin of rejecting him. The second coming of the Lord will be, if you will, a rescue mission for God's nation and people of Israel. Now, this purpose does not involve the church, for the church is not Israel as some would seem to believe or teach. No, the purpose of the tribulation can be summed up in this way. The purpose of the tribulation is to manifest God's justice and wrath to all who reject him and to restore the nation of Israel to God. Understanding these four purposes of God for the tribulation, that is, that he is going to demonstrate his justice and wrath on the ungodly in a tangible and visible way, that God is going to make an end of wickedness and evil upon the earth, that God is offering his grace to those who turn to him even during this terrible time of wrath, and finally God will do it to break the power of the holy people of Israel, turning them back to himself. This understanding of these purposes of God for the tribulation brings us to the question that has to be answered. Will Christians go through the tribulation? Now, does God ever indicate in the Bible that Christians should experience his justice and wrath 
for the rejection of him? Of course not. During the church age, Christians are those who have turned to God and accepted his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as their personal Savior. Believers are given the promise that they will experience everlasting life, but never come under God's wrath. For John 3.36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. You see, the wrath of God is for those who reject Jesus Christ's offer of salvation. In Romans 1.18 we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Those are the ones that reject Christ, not the ones who have received him. This leads us to the question, is the church Israel? The church consists of both Jewish and Gentile believers who compose the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ is not a nation. It's not a nation that was chosen by God. The bride of Christ are all true believers who have come to know Christ from beginning in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost and continuing on to the catching up the church. Now, since the church doesn't fit into any of these four purposes of the tribulation, God is going to remove it before he begins this phase of his plan for Israel and his specific focus on the nation of Israel to bring them back to him. Now, I mentioned the rapture, the catching of the church. We need to remember what God says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10, where he says, To wait for his Son from heaven, that's the church, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Paul was speaking to the church, not the nation of Israel, not the unbelievers during the tribulation. Therefore, the church will be delivered before the tribulation. You see, there's no need for the church to go through the tribulation. Remember, it is the church that is the bride of Christ. A true bridegroom protects his bride. Let me sum it up this way. The church has not rejected the gospel. Rather, she's responded to it. She has accepted the Lord as Savior. The church does not need justice. She has been declared righteous by God the Father. The church, and I remind you again, the church has all true believers from Acts chapter 2 to the catching of the church. The church does not need to be broken. She has already come to God at repentance when she received Jesus Christ as her Savior. Finally, the church doesn't need cleansing. The blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed her from all her sins. As an individual, if you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you need to remember these points. Not only is the church the bride of Christ, but she is also called an ambassador. That's a foreigner in a foreign land representing the country they have come from and the head of the government they represent which in the case of the church is representing the Lord Jesus Christ in this country of the world 
for our citizenship is in heaven. We must never forget our home is in heaven where we look for our Savior. Now, every government in the world calls its ambassadors home before there's a war. So too will our Lord call us home before the world faces the great tribulation. That leads us to the question of where do you stand today? The garden, the tribulation, and the millennium all serve to destroy all of humanity's excuses for not turning to God and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God leaves the choice up to each individual to decide. You'll never be able to say to God, if only my life was not so hard, I would turn to you. Or, if only I could have lived in a better community, with a better environment, have a better family, I would turn to you. If only there were justice in the world, I would turn to you. Or, if the world didn't offer me just so many things and so much, I would turn to you. No, God has removed all excuses and demonstrated this throughout history. Bottom line, the problem is within us all because we are all sinners. Each of us has to recognize God is right when he wrote, All have sinned and come short or fall short of the glory of God. That's God's standard of holiness. Further, God says, There's none righteous, no, not one. Finally, God notes that the wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What does he mean through Jesus Christ the Lord? Well, you see, God cared so much about us that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die on a cross for us. There, Jesus Christ paid the wages of your sins, my sins, and all humanity by dying on that cross. Now, if he was only a man, he would have had to pay for his own wages of sin. But Jesus Christ is both man and God, and thus he had never sinned, no, not even once. He had no wages to pay. Thus, he could accept your wages of sin. He could pay for your wages of sin by being a righteous substitute for us, a substitute acceptable to God the Father. Now, we know that his payment was sufficient because after three days in the grave, he rose from the dead and now lives to offer us his free gift of deliverance from our sins. He does this by his grace. Again, the Bible tells us, By grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, you cannot pay for your sins by working, by being good, by being religious, or by being baptized or any religious effort, thinking your good will outweigh your bad, for they won't. You see, if they could, you could boast about how great you are and how you earned your way to be with God and spend eternity in heaven with him. No, you need to give up trying and to simply trust in Jesus Christ's work on the cross, paying for your sins. The Bible says, 
as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. You see, you believe when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your substitute, and trust in his payment for your sins instead of trying to do it. You accept him by faith that he will come into you and be your Savior. Jesus Christ illustrated this action when he said, Behold, I stand at the door, that's the door of your heart, and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup or have fellowship with him and he with me. When you do that by faith and trust in Christ alone for your salvation, not only are your sins paid for, not only will you spend eternity with him, you become part of the bride of Christ. Almost the last words of the Bible say to us, and the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, and the bride, that's the bride of Christ, say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, you need to recognize that and turn to him now. If you have received Christ as your Savior, then you, like us, can say that we are waiting for a person to come and not a vent, not the tribulation. For we are looking for that blessed hope and that glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, until you join me here again at CMI-TV, may our Lord bless you mightily, and I'll see you either here or in the air.